sermon audio is a presentation of First International Baptist Church of Copenhagen, Denmark. Oh, Romeo, Romeo, wherefore art thou Romeo? That famous line, right? Oh, Romeo. Um, <laughs> that Juliet says, sometimes people think she's saying, where are you, Romeo, as if she lost him. But it's wherefore art thou Romeo? Why are you Romeo? The problem was, Juliet was a Capulet, and Romeo was a Montague. They were from two different clans, two different families, and there had been a feud between them for years. And so because they were from two feuding families, they could never, what she thought would be, together again. So she goes on to say, deny thy father and refuse thy name. Tis but thy name that is my enemy, she goes on to say. And what's in a name, she says. That which we call a rose, by any other name, would smell as sweet. And in a way, she's right. Because sometimes whatever you decide to call something doesn't change its character. But not so with Jesus of Nazareth. You shall call his name Jesus, is what Joseph was told, for he will save his people from their sins. Today we live in an age when the name of Jesus Christ is sometimes, in fact, very often called upon as a swear word. When it should be called upon to bring healing and restoration, salvation, because his name means salvation. But today people don't really know who he is, and in fact many don't care to know who he is. He's mostly irrelevant. People have no problem using his name in jest or with scorn or as a curse, sometimes dropping the F-bomb in between Jesus and Christ as though it were his middle name. Well, today we're going to see a detailed account of what Luke had earlier called many wonders and signs that were being done through the apostles. As they were doing these signs and wonders, they were doing them in the name of Jesus. And that's what we're going to see today, that the occasion of what Luke, is going to, the, uh, uh, what Luke is going to give us the account of was provided to call people to repentance so that the apostles could bear witness of Jesus Christ's powerful name and bear witness of his resurrection. So we're going to read today about the lame man who could stand, walk, and even leap. We're going to hear the words of Peter as he preached to the crowd that was amazed when they saw this man. And we're going to see how the religious leaders responded to what had happened and what was being proclaimed. But on that last point, we'll only just briefly touch on that because the response of the leaders launches us into the message for next Sunday. The account that we're going to read today all happens between late afternoon of one day and the evening of the same day. And then next Sunday, we're going to address the following day. So if you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Acts chapter 3 to see this detailed account of one of these signs and wonders that Luke had referred to in chapter 2. But Acts chapter 3, beginning in verse 1, hopefully you bring your Bibles with you. Uh, I'm reading from the English Standard Version, but uh, hopefully you can read from some, perhaps for some of you in language of your own uh, as your first language. But Acts chapter 3, beginning in verse 1, in the English Standard Version. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour, which if you look at the note, it says that's 3 p.m. 
and a man, lame from birth, was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the beautiful gate, to ask alms of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, Look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple, asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. Let's stop there for a moment before reading on. But Peter and John were going up to the temple, which, as you perhaps already know, is the house of prayer. They were observing a common practice among the Jews to go to the house of prayer to pray and to go on a regular basis. There were hours of prayer in the morning and in the evening in connection with the morning and evening offerings. And as we read here, this was about the ninth hour or around 3 p.m. And there was a man there who was lame from birth. We'll soon discover later in the story that he was now almost 40 years old. So he'd been lame ever since he'd been born and now for over 40 years. We're not told his name, strangely enough. When Peter heals a paralytic in chapter 9 of Acts, his name, we're told, is Aeneas, someone who'd been bedridden for eight years. And we're also not told the name of the man in chapter 14 when Paul heals a lame man in Lystra. All we really know about this man is that he was lame from birth, and now that he was 40 years old, he was still lame from birth. And every day he was carried and laid at the gate of the temple to ask for alms. What are alms? Alms is a word whose root is in the word mercy. Almost always the word alms is used in gifts to the poor. He was asking for mercy, for people to show him mercy since he was poor and he had no means of work. He was asking for a financial gift. And the giving of alms for the poor was an important part of the Jewish faith, so the poor would gather at the temple, naturally, to beg there. So he sees Peter and John and asks them for alms. Now, Peter didn't have any gold or silver to give him. Instead, he heals him in the name of Jesus. He asked him to fix his attention on them, which he then did, and then said, rise up and walk. And as we'll see later, Peter knew that the power to heal did not come from himself. Nor did the power come from their piety or godliness, as though God is somehow compelled to act when his saints are especially holy. Peter knew that God has the power to heal because God has exerted his power through Jesus Christ in the many miracles that he, Peter, had personally witnessed before this day happened. And he also remembers Jesus' words when he was sent out to go into the towns of Israel where Jesus instructed his disciples to heal the sick in it and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near you. So he had personally witnessed and experienced himself the name of Jesus Christ healing those around him 
And he remembers Jesus' own words in John chapter 14, 12, which says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, Jesus said, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. And so Peter looks at this man and says, In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. Now notice, too, that he actually extends his right hand and raises him up, assisting him to his feet. So here I see Peter and the layman both putting their faith into action as Peter extends his hand to him still, and the man takes his hand and begins to get up. And as he's getting up, his feet and his ankles were made strong. Peter may have helped him up, but it was the power of the name of Jesus Christ, as Peter later says, the faith in his name that has made this man strong, and the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health. <clears throat> Amazingly, not only did he just stand and walk, he actually began to leap, praising God. And this was not normal behavior for those who came to the temple to pray. So that's why he attracted a lot of attention now, especially from the people that had gone by the temple again and again and had seen him as the lame man. Now they saw him rejoicing, walking, and praising God. And so is it any wonder for us that they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to them? But here's the point of this, that the power of Jesus Christ was being displayed through the authority of the apostles and their ministry of healing. In chapter 2, Luke had said many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. This was just one of them. In chapter 5 of verse 12, it says, Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. In chapter 8, verse 6, we'll see that the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. And now when we read the Bible and see these supernatural wonders that God does through his prophets, through Christ, through the apostles, we tend to think that these miracles are normative for every day and age, that we as the disciples of Jesus Christ should also be able to do that. And boy, if I had that kind of faith, I would first of all make my lame leg less lame, as many of you heard last week, I got injured. Uh, Carla, where are you? I would put my hand on your eye and I would make sure that that eye could see again. Um, Susie, I would be there at your mother's side and raise her from the grave. Many of you don't know this, but Susie lost her mother this week. And I would do many things if I had that power to do that. So sometimes we wonder, where is God's power today? Can we still, in the name of Jesus, cause people to rise from the dead, to be healed, to see again? And when we look at the Bible, sometimes we think, well, this should be happening all the time. But in fact, there are long periods of time in the biblical accounts in between the times when you see these miracles. The Bible covers a lot of history. And what we oftentimes don't see are these long gaps in between the times when God is doing these miracles that go against what we would say is natural. God interacts with his servant Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in supernatural ways. And he speaks to Joseph through dreams and interpretations of dreams. But then all of a sudden there's 400 years before Moses comes on the scene and you see miracles again through the life of Moses and the miracles that happened to the, um, uh, the Egyptians. And then many years after that time between them and the prophet Samuel and King David, and then many of the prophets 
and then a lot of time between them and Elijah and Elisha, and then many years again between them and Daniel. So it seems that there are specific periods in history when God chooses to establish the credibility of his messengers through the signs and wonders that accompany their messages. Moses, for example, the supernatural signs to demonstrate if they didn't believe that he was really from the Lord, then he was given specific miracles that he could do. Elijah and Elisha, when Israel was violating the covenant of the Lord, we see their miracles to establish the supremacy of the Lord over the other gods that they had come to worship. And then you see Jesus, many years later, coming and making audacious claims to be the Son of God and being sent from the Father, and it was his signs and his wonders, like healing the lepers, giving sight to the blind, making the lame to, to walk, all confirming that he was who he claimed to be, and that he could authentically say, your sins are forgiven you. And so we see here the apostles as first-hand eyewitnesses to the words and works of Jesus Christ, especially eyewitnesses to his resurrection. They had their testimony validated by the signs and wonders that accompanied their proclamation that this truly was the holy and righteous one, the author of life. And the New Testament consists only of the gospel accounts and letters that can be attested to those specific eyewitnesses. Yes, also Paul, but he also was an eyewitness to the resurrected Christ after the twelve. So the question we ask is, does God still display his power through such signs and wonders through his people? It was Cornelius Alapid, a Jesuit priest in the late 1500s, who wrote an account of Pope Innocent II, when Pope Innocent was counting a large sum of money before Thomas Aquinas, the Pope said to Thomas, the church can no longer say, silver and gold have I none. To which Thomas Aquinas replied, true, Holy Father, neither can she say, rise up and walk. And we know that there are no longer any apostles living today, at least not those who were eyewitnesses, because they've all died. And if we define an apostle in that narrow sense of those who were eyewitnesses of Jesus and his resurrection, then we don't have apostles today. Now, I know that sometimes apostle is used in a more broader sense. It means one who is sent out. And so one could argue that all of us as Christians are apostles because we are all sent out in the name of Jesus to harvest the souls. And sometimes there are people today that will call themselves an apostle. They'll use that title. But since they don't carry that same authority regarding the word of God, I think it's not a good use of that title. Because I think the title of apostle is those who were eyewitnesses to Jesus' ministry and his resurrection, and they carry the authority which we now see in the word of God. So then there are also some who conclude that since the true apostles have all died, then the New Testament canon is thus complete, and therefore the signs and wonders that accompanied them have also ceased. Some would call this cessationist theology. Personally, I believe that God can and still intervene in ways that would be beyond what we would call natural. That is, physical healings that would be beyond what medicine is capable of or what naturally would take place over time. But I also have some very strong reservations about those so-called healers or sometimes they're called prophets who go on healing ministries and are getting very rich off of other people. After all, why do they make such a big show of the healings, but they don't call people to repentance or to walk with Christ in a discipleship relationship? And why do they all wear glasses? (laughs) 
Why are they still susceptible to the ravages of age? And if they really can heal all those people of their handicaps and make legs their equal length, and why do they have friends and family members who still suffer from cancer and succumb to age? It was Augustine that wrote in the exposition of the Psalms that the miracles of the soul, that is the healing of a corrupt human heart, to love God above all and to love his neighbor as himself, that complete renovation of the heart and its desires is the greatest evidence that God is still performing miracles. And I think I would agree with that. That the change that happens in a person's heart is a sign and wonder that God is at work. And more often than the signs and wonders of the, power of, of the physical healings, God displays his power in the lives of those who confess their sins and turn to Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. It was a little over, over 34 years ago when I sat in the church pew in Jakarta, Indonesia, and responded to the grace of God revealed to me. There as I sat, I confessed my sins. I knew I had sinned against God. And I acknowledged Christ's sacrifice for me, and I surrendered my life to God. That day, he transformed my heart. And little did I know that five years after that, I would sense a calling to missions or ministry for the very first time. Now, some more time would pass. I was still pondering whether or not that calling was for me. But after about four and a half more years, our small family of three was headed for seminary to be prepared for ministry. And there I would discover that my calling, or that God's calling on my life, was for pastoral ministry, a calling that I have since tried to remain faithful to for the last 24 and a half years. But in all of those 34 years, I have had the privilege of sharing the gospel with people countless times, of leading people through the prayer of repentance, maybe just a handful of times, baptized, I don't know how many. But most significantly, I have witnessed that transforming power of the Word of God when people receive its truth and they apply it to their lives. And one of the reasons that I believe my calling is in pastoral ministry is because I'm personally so encouraged when I see others encouraged. When they hear the Word of God, they apply its truth and experience God firsthand. As they walk with Christ, they hear His words, they experience the power of the Holy Spirit in them. And I certainly would not have volunteered for the role of preacher, as I always have this lack of confidence when I'm up here standing before people with the Word of God. I much prefer to do this in a more personal setting, in a small group. But praise be to God that He's the one who chooses the vessels that He chooses to show His power through, and not me. And despite my own weaknesses and lack of confidence, I can testify of the great things that God has done in my life and in other people's lives when all I have done is simply delivered his word. So the question for you is, will you be his vessel to display his power that is in the name of Jesus Christ? I know all of us would probably prefer to always be physically healthy. I'm sure we would always prefer that our marriages were complete and healthy and were no weaknesses in them. I think all of us may desire a better job or a better financial situation than the one we're currently in. All of us perhaps long for more strength, greater talents, more marketable skills, higher esteem. But praise be to God that he's the one that chooses the vessel through which he will show his power. And it is when we are weak 
then he is strong. And so I think we are also most like the early church when we display the power of Jesus Christ in our lives, just as Peter did. Now, let's go on in this story to notice what, the, what happens next. As Peter then chooses this opportunity to proclaim the name of Jesus Christ. And as we read through this, I want you to notice how many times he makes a reference to God or Jesus or the pronoun for either of them. I'll give you a hint. It's about 29 times because I highlighted them as I was studying this. Verse 11, while he, that is the man who was healed, clung to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people, men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us? As though by our own power or piety, we have made, them walk, made him walk. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers glorified his servant, Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. And his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn back that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus whom heaven must receive until the time of restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Moses said, and he quotes from Moses, the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you, and it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaimed these days, you are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your father, saying to Abraham, now he quotes what he was said to Abraham, and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. So it seems also that the man that they, were, that he had, that they had healed was staying with Peter and John the rest of that evening in the temple. In fact, as we're going to see next week, he's standing there as well when they're defending their actions and their words, that the man is still there with them. And Luke records that the leaders had nothing to say in opposition because they were looking right at the man who was healed standing beside them. And Peter took this opportunity then, after having displayed the power that is in the name of Jesus Christ, to now preach the gospel to those Jews who had gathered around. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus. It was clearly a deed that was done by the God of the universe who they already believed in, the one who revealed his covenant and his promises, and now his Christ to his people. God would send times of refreshing. He had spoken through Moses. He would raise up a prophet like Moses, and he had made a covenant with, his father, with their fathers that he had now fulfilled. God had raised up his servant whom they had tried, or in, who in fact they succeeded in killing. 
Isn't it interesting, the irony, that the author of life was killed by them? That instead of having the author of life be given to them, they asked for a taker of life, a murderer instead. Pilate had found no guilt in Jesus that was worthy of the death penalty. And when he asked the people then what he should do with him, they responded, crucify him. Away with this man, they said to Pilate. Release to us Barabbas, a man who was in prison because he had led an insurrection and he was guilty of murder. They denied this Jesus, meaning they rejected his identity as the Son of God and his identity as their Messiah. And when Peter uses the titles of the Holy and Righteous One, it is clearly a reference to what they were familiar with that the prophets had said the one to come was the Holy and Righteous One. They, have, they may have killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead. And Peter was clear that it is faith in the name of this Jesus, the man whom you now see and know was made strong. And it's interesting, too, that he says to them, Now, brothers, I know you acted in ignorance, as did your leaders. What he's saying, then, is, even though you may have been ignorant, you're not innocent. And now is the opportunity to no longer reject the one that God sent. Now is the opportunity to repent and turn back so that your sins, even against the one that you chose to kill, can be blotted out. So the apostles proclaimed the name of Jesus Christ as they called people to repent from their wickedness against God and instead to turn to God. And as we share the gospel of Jesus Christ, there's at least three things we should be clear on. First of all, as Peter was, we should be clear on the identity of God and his plan. Because what we have experienced is a personal relationship with the God of the universe. Now, we may not refer to him as God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob to the audience that we are speaking with, because they may not be familiar with him in that way. Perhaps to them it's more significant that we refer to the God of the Bible or the creator of the universe or the eternal God or God who reveals himself through the prophets of the Old and New Testaments. Because today, isn't it true that people have many ideas about God and many of them don't even believe in creation or they come from another religious background. So it's critical that we are clear that the God we bear witness of is the righteous, holy, and good God of of the Bible. Because if God is not perfectly right, holy, and good, then there's no need for us to be either. We can remain just as we are. But because God is perfectly right and holy and good, then all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The second thing we should be clear on, not only on God's identity, but also on man's sinfulness and guilt. Peter made it very clear that you are guilty of having denied this Jesus Christ that has now healed this person whom you now see as as whole. And most people who don't read the Bible or have our understanding of God probably do not admit to being sinful or wicked or evil or guilty of any kind of rebellion. Because unless they come to a place in their lives where they realize that they they, they do some bad things, they have evil thoughts, they indulge in pleasures that they know are wrong, if they don't come to that realization, then they will likely think of themselves as a good person, at least not as evil or bad as the person next to them. But what the Bible reveals is that there is no one righteous, not even one. 
And we are all dead in our trespasses and sins. We are all children of wrath, the Bible says. And everyone, or everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or one who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. We are guilty of offending God through our selfish indulgence, our prideful resistance, our lustful greed, and our impatience. And I think all of us can say, at one point in our life, we are guilty of committing such sins. So that until we acknowledge that Jesus of Nazareth is the Christ, the Son of the living God, then we are just as guilty of rejecting God and his servant. We may feign ignorance, but as I said earlier, ignorance is not innocence. The third thing we need to be clear on is also our need to repent from our wickedness and to turn to God. See, there is no way for us to be cleared of our guilt against God other than the way that God has provided. You and I cannot approach the God of the universe on our terms, but on his. Today, an employee may have some influence on the terms of his employment. Sure. Perhaps a student, on a very rare occasion, may influence what the professor puts on his or her syllabus. Sometimes, when a large enough group of people with one voice speak to their government, sometimes they listen. But don't let that make you believe that we as human beings can determine how the God of the universe can be approached. Because the potter cannot, excuse me, the, the clay cannot say to the potter what to do with the clay. And sheep do not determine where the shepherd takes them. We need to repent and turn to God so that our sins may be wiped out, just as Peter is calling those in his audience. And if we think that our sinful behavior was never all that sinful, then repentance isn't anything more than just a slight adjustment in the path that I was already taking. Since many people acknowledge only that they're not perfect, but otherwise they're good enough, they don't feel a need to be converted in any way. So we have to make it clear. Because only those who've lived a life of crime or are heavily into drugs and other addictions, if they've caused a lot of grief and harm to others, then they might say, yeah, I need to turn from my wicked ways. But the reality is that any sin has so separated us from God that we were once destined for wrath and condemnation. Too often in our testimonies, we don't speak of a time when we truly confessed our sins and turned away from our sins. Some of those that are from Romania, maybe you can attest to this as well, but I think that when I've heard Romanian testimonies, I hear the word repentance, right? You, you say, I repented back in 1985. They use the word repented. I think we need to use that more often as well, that you have to repent from your sins, your wicked ways before, so that your sins can also be blotted out. And in general, when we say, well, I found Christ at such and such time, or I accepted Christ, the fact is Christ was never lost. <laughs> It was he that accepted us. So we should use that kind of language of repentance, acknowledging the nature of our sins and letting people know that what they have done is sinful and it offends God. But then give them the opportunity as we exalt God's grace and his mercy and his willingness and love for us anyway. So we are most like the early church also, not only when we 
display God's power in our lives, but when we proclaim the name of Jesus Christ and we call people to repentance. Just a few more verses here as we try to wrap things up. In chapter 4 then, notice what happens among the people who are listening and also among the leaders who, were, who noticed what began to happen. In chapter 4 now, just the first four verses, and as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. Previously, those who had believed in Jesus Christ had numbered 3,000 and were baptized into Christ. So now through the testimony of the apostles, accompanied by these proofs of God's power, the church was exploding. As Peter was calling people to repentance, at least another 2,000 people responded. But the priests, the captain of the temple guard, and the Sadducees, instead of responding to the gospel, they seize Peter and John and they jail them because they were greatly disturbed that they were, as he says, teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. You may remember that it was the Sadducees that are the sect among the religious leaders that did not believe in the resurrection. And so here was a group of people that were proclaiming Jesus Christ had risen from the dead. And Peter, you'll notice in the book of Acts, continually will claim that the same Jesus of Nazareth that was crucified and was buried was also raised from the dead. In Acts chapter 2, verse 32, this Jesus God raised up, and of that we're all witnesses. In chapter 3, verse 15, which we just read, you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. And we'll see also in their defense next Sunday, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. And in verse 33 of chapter 4, and with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. The apostles continuously would bear witness to the resurrection of Jesus Christ as the central theme of their preaching. And so central to anything we ever preach or proclaim or sing about must be the fact that Jesus Christ was crucified and that he was raised again from the dead. What would you say to someone? who perhaps was on his dying breath and was about to enter into eternity, not knowing what could be, that he could be forgiven of his sins and have eternal life through Christ. That could be a very real situation for some of you. Not that you would be right there at an accident or something, but maybe a family or, or a friend who doesn't know Christ and has just a few more days to live. What would you say to let them know that Jesus can save them. You know, in college, I had a friend who gave me the opportunity to explain to her what she needed to believe. She wasn't dying or anything, but she was going to give me just one opportunity. I had one shot to explain the gospel to her. What would I say? Well, how did the Apostle Paul put it? In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 3 and 4, maybe you should note this so that if you're ever in that situation, you know exactly what to say. He says this, for what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, 
that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Peter and then to the twelve. In this context, as Paul is writing, he's not trying to convince anyone of Christ's bodily resurrection because that was already well attested by many, and many of those who actually had seen him were still living at the time they could be asked. Paul was using the indisputable fact of Christ's resurrection in chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians to argue against the claim of some at the time that there is no resurrection of the dead. And so he was saying, well, how can you say that when Jesus Christ was raised from the dead? And their faith would be proven in vain if that statement were true when they said there is no resurrection. But Christ's bodily resurrection may be something that is contested today. Because we're so far removed from the actual event. But there is much good literature out there that provides plenty of proofs and reasons to believe that the eyewitness accounts are plausible. Remember, these are the same disciples who themselves didn't believe that Jesus had been raised from the dead at the time until they saw him when he appeared to them living again. When that hard evidence of the empty tomb and the resurrected body of Jesus was present with them for them to see and touch and hold, from then on, there was no mistaking that Jesus was raised from the grave and there was no stopping the eyewitnesses from bearing testimony of it. And so in the same way, Christ's bodily resurrection from the dead is a vital part of the gospel that Paul would preach as a fact that Jesus Christ died for our sins, but that he was also raised from the grave. The gospel is a stumbling block to Jews and folly to the Gentiles. It's offensive and absurd, in other words, that God the Son would take on human flesh and then also surrender himself to the religious authorities and the Roman authorities and then suffer at the hands at their hands and be nailed to a cross, that the, the long-awaited Messiah, the anointed one who would save Israel from their oppressors, would be weak, cursed, shamed, to die like a thief or a murderer. But that death was foretold since the Garden of Eden, and it was foreshadowed in the Passover. His sacrifice was prefigured in the priestly functions, and it was predicted in the visions of the prophets. God let his servant be smitten, afflicted, pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities, so that by his obedience, the many will be made righteous. Friends, that's the facts. Those are the facts that have to be included in any testimony of who Jesus Christ is, that he died for our sins. But if Christ was not raised from the dead, then we would have also no confidence that the dead in Christ will rise again. So it is the resurrection that must be central to anything that we proclaim or preach or speak of or sing about, that's the truth that gives us hope, that when we face any illness or death, and as we know from the testimony of your mom, right, Susie? She was a member of the Baptist Church for years. Sorry to put you, call you out on this. But she had a testimony of faith in Jesus Christ. So our sorrows not, are not like those who have no hope. Because Jesus Christ was raised from the dead, we know that your mother will be raised again from the dead. Amen? Amen. Because he is risen. He is risen indeed. I know today's not Easter, but today is a Sunday, and the apostles also would celebrate the resurrection day every week. That's why they gathered on the first day of each week, because that was the day that they remembered their Lord Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. So, as I review, we display the power of God in our lives so that we can proclaim the grace of God and call people to repentance in the name of Jesus Christ. 
and we bear witness of his resurrection. And we are most like the early church when we let God display his power in us, when we invite people into the grace of God, and when we live by the power of the resurrected Christ. The best evidence of the power of God today is in the changed lives of those who have experienced him personally. So don't get discouraged. The enemy will try to oppose you and try to silence you as a witness of Jesus Christ. There is power in the name of Jesus Christ. So don't be afraid to go in his authority and be his witness to the ends of the earth. Preach that sins can be blotted out, that times of refreshing will come, and that Jesus Christ will return. And in his name, give people that proverbial cup of water to the least of these his brothers and do it in his name. And when you pray, pray in the name of Jesus so that those things that you know he would be willing to stand by as he intercedes on our behalf, he will do. As I close, there's a quick story, a little bit humorous, of a woman who went to the office of a cemetery manager complaining, I can't find my husband's grave. I know he's buried here. The manager asked, what is the name? John Jones, she replied. And the manager referred to his index card. Madam, we have no John Jones. We have a Mary Jones. That's my husband, she said, because everything is in my name. (laughs) Well, she's right. Sometimes, oh, sorry. But yes, sometimes whatever we do should be done, not by our name, but in his name, so that he may be exalted and people will remember us only for what we said about him and what we did in his name. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for the hope that is ours in Jesus Christ. When we have confessed our sins, we know that he is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. That Jesus, our Savior, stands and intercedes on our behalf, pleading our case, knowing that what we have done may have been done in ignorance or may have been done fully knowing that we were sinning against you. But nevertheless, we know that though we are guilty, the blood of Jesus Christ can wash us of all our sins. Lord, we rejoice in the hope of the resurrection that one day we will once again see all those who have died in Christ. And together with all the saints through all the ages, we will be raised again to life to live with you eternally. Father, we know that we live in a time and an age and a world today where there's darkness over the hearts and minds of so many. And you have given us the light. So Lord, we offer to you these our weak vessels, our stammering tongues, our reluctance sometimes. And we offer to you, Lord, ourselves, that you might use us to be the ones to share the good news with our neighbor, our coworker, with our teachers, whoever else that we know. Oh Lord, empower us, we pray. Do mighty and great things in our lives through your word. Let us bear testimony of the great things you've done so that others too can hear about Jesus Christ and they too can have their sins blotted out and receive eternal life. Father, have your way in us, we pray. May your Holy Spirit move in us as a church, as individuals, so that you would be glorified. As we raise up Jesus Christ and exalt him, may he be seen and known. In his name we pray. Amen. This has been a presentation of First International Baptist Church of Copenhagen, Denmark. 
To listen to more sermon podcasts or to learn more about FIBC, please visit www.fibc.dk or facebook.com forward slash FIBC CPH. Thank you for listening.